In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Uh, today, our special guest is uh, Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer, Publicist. I, hopefully, hopefully I pronounced that correctly after you gave me a lesson here, and host of the Jason and Scott e-commerce uh, podcast. So welcome, Jason. Hey, uh, thrilled to be here, Bobby. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the pompous French pronunciation. You nailed it. <laughs> I tried. I tried. At least uh, you get you get something for trying here. <laughs> Jason, uh, it's funny, uh, you know, kind of looking at your background, it seems like, you know, retail geek is kind of your middle name. Can you can you give our listeners a little bit of uh, what that's all about? Uh, yeah, that that was a, a handle I started using on like websites and services in the 90s. So quite some time ago. And then I, I eventually uh, launched a blog and you had to have a URL for the blog. So I kind of picked that that retail geek thing uh, with no particular strategy but it it has become sort of a a moniker for me, if you will. And there's a earlier in my career, I did a lot of work at Best Buy. There's a guy there, Robert Stevens, who started Geek Squad and sold Geek Squad to Best Buy, or as he likes to say, bought Best Buy from Best Buy. He likes to call it a, res- a reverse acquisition. But he and I used to have this saying, like obviously he built this hugely successful company with Geek in the name, and I have this very unsuccessful personal persona with Geek in the name. And so we used to have this uh, mutual slogan that geek is not a pejorative. But to be honest, these days, nobody even gets that because, na- you know, geek seems so sort of mainstream now that people forget that it was once a pejorative. You're also, uh, you know, associated with the National Re- Retail Federation, which is a highly regarded uh, you know, organization. Tell us about what you do there. The National Retail Federation is a trade organization that represents all uh, retailers in, in the United States, you know, in their mutual interests. And they, they do a lot of... Uh, a lobbying that's beneficial to to retailers. They do a lot of uh, education programs for people starting out their careers in retail. Um, they have a foundation that gives away scholarships. And a number of years ago, the National Retail Federation acquired another trade organization that was really focused on e-commerce. And that was an organization called shop.org. Scott Silverman and some some folks founded this great digital organization called shop.org. Many of us that were involved early in e-commerce kind of, you know, relied on shop.org as a, a community to help us learn how to or figure out how to do all this stuff. And that organization grew up. Uh, it was acquired by the National Retail Federation. And so now we're sort of the digital arm of NRF. We're now called the Digital Council. And the membership used to elect the board of directors. I was actually one of the last board members elected. And uh, uh, today I'm the executive chairman of that board. So not only are, do you know everything about retail, you also get exposed to all these, you know, smart people also that are all, always uh, talking shop in the retail world. That's great. Yeah. Basically, my career is getting to talk to a lot of smarter people that love retail. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. As we all kind of know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, things are, are starting to look, uh, you know, a little bit brighter here as we start to get, uh, it feels like the, the end of the pandemic. But 
as retailers kind of look at their businesses, uh, what do you think, you know, some of the biggest challenges are for retailers as they start to get back in the in the groove of things, whether it's a new normal or we really get to, to our old normal. What do you think it takes? It's interesting because I'm sad. I feel like a lot of people do feel like, oh, gosh, we're at the end of things. And I I really feel like that's a dangerous attitude because I, I actually think we're probably at the very end of the beginning of things. <laughs> I certainly would buy into your premise that it's it's a new normal. And I feel like one of the most dangerous words in, in terms of strategic planning around this pandemic is the word back, because I, I just don't think we're ever going to go back to how things were before. I feel like we we accidentally all jumped into the hot tub time machine and we've zoomed forward five to 10 years. And so now, you know, our mission is really to figure out how to be the the best version of ourselves in that that new future. Um, I think spending any cycles trying to figure out how to do things the old way is probably not well invested at this point. Are there changes that you think um, retailers should start to think about in their businesses? And if so, do you know what those changes are that they should be focused on? Or is it, are we all learning together here? I think there's two kinds of things that are going on. Like, uh, so a super complicated. Everyone is like, what's the trend and what's the effect? And I'm like, well, there are eight trends that contradict each other. And the you know, the basket of those trends results in some effect, but very hard to correlate the exact contribution of each of those trends to that effect. So that being said, like there's a in that basket of trends, there's some things that are somewhat familiar and we can use history as a predictor and sort of learn from. So there's been a huge economic impact of the pandemic. We're in a very deep recession now. Um, that was much more abrupt than any other recession in history. You know, we had a bad recession in 2001. We had a bad recession in 2008. There's a lot of things we can learn about how consumers change behaviors and uh, what best practices are in a recession. You know, we're all getting out those playbooks and it's not super risky to assume that we'll see similar things, you know, with different nuances, but similar things this time around as those past times. We're seeing a huge consolidation of retail. A ton of retailers are going to go out of business. A ton of healthy retailers are going to close a bunch of stores. The stores that remain are going to have more power and leverage. We've seen periods of major consolidation in retail before. We've seen what happened when the big box specialty format emerged and, uh, you know, really squeezed out the main street operator. And so there's a lot of things we can learn from that period of consolidation that's likely going to apply to this period of consolidation. But then we have this whole bucket of things that I'll call uh, COVID-19 behaviors, uh, things we've all had to learn differently primarily because we're quarantined and sequestered. And it's really difficult to predict which of those things are going to be permanent versus which of those things are tertiary. And maybe there's even a counter trend afterwards. And so I'll, I'll give you a simple example. The meals we consume used to be about 50-50 or 60-40. Meals we consume in restaurants or what I'll call on-prem versus off-prem or at home. Because of the pandemic, 98% of our meals are consumed at home. So we've all learned how to cook. Everybody's bought the world supply of yeast. Uh, we're all learning how to bake. Uh, a bunch of people, you know, um, bought new cookware. So now uh, when the quarantine is over, which we should talk about at some point, those folks that learned how to cook keep cooking at home? Or are they thrilled to go back to their favorite restaurants and there's a counter trend of restaurant parent, uh, patronage, right? So, you know, and I think that, the answer is the jury's out. Some people probably will permanently cook more meals at home. Other people will probably rejoice at uh, closing down their home, their home kitchen again. So those trends are really hard to follow. I guess, or not hard to follow, but hard to predict how, how they're going to play out because there really is no analogous to this. We, we look a lot at um, SARS in China in 2002, 2003, where there was also a quarantine, but it's, 
it's hard to assume that what happened there is going to happen here since circumstances were so different. Like that was at that time an emerging tier one economy. And uh, like there really wasn't a lot of brick and mortar infrastructure. So in SARS in 2003, e-commerce was born and became huge. Alibaba was a $10 million company in 2002. In 2005, they were a $1.5 billion company. So in that sequester, everyone permanently became e-commerce shoppers. We have more ingrained brick and mortar shopping behavior here. So probably doubtful we'll see that dramatic of an e-commerce shift, but very likely we're going to see a big acceleration of e-commerce adoption. Part of uh, what would be interesting to see is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a stat I was reading here in the San Francisco uh, area, and, and they were saying on average, you know, people are going out uh, 0.8x times a week, so less than one. And they were saying, you know, that's going to go up to 3.2x times. And it's one of many, you know, thoughts here. It'd be interesting to see if that actually proves that or, you know, if people are, you know, cautious in the beginning and, and it takes a little bit of time. And to your point, now people are cooking at home. So some of those behaviors kind of change. And that's all, you know, of course, the jury's out on that. But it'd be interesting to see kind of what happens here, because that's going to, based on how consumer behavior changes here, I think a lot of retailers need to be at the forefront of how they adapt their businesses and ensure that they're at the forefront of giving those customer experiences uh, you know, back to customers where, where, wherever they want to interact with those brands. As an example, one of the behaviors we see in the pandemic, which is interesting, is pack sizes are way huger. So you used to buy cans of soup, now you buy cases of soup, right? You used to buy a six pack of toilet paper, now you buy a 24 pack of toilet paper if you can find it. Is that a permanent behavior or is that, you know, a temporary response to the pandemic? Because that has huge implications on retail stores, right? If, if grocery stores knew that in the future they're going to sell a lot more cases of soup, then they don't have as, as much room on the shelf for as many varieties of soup, right? And, and so do they carry less soup and carry more cases or do they put more, you know, do they recreate a storeroom, which is something retailers used to have that most don't have today and put cases of soup in the storeroom and replenish that shelf more often? Like there are all these operational things you would think about that are all predicated on knowing is that a, a permanent shift in consumer behavior or a tertiary shift in consumer behavior. And some of them like that one, I, I think are like, there's not a lot of data to, to play, use to place your bet. So it's risky. There are others. If you bought a Peloton bike, you're probably a lot less likely to rejoin the gym when this is all over, right? Like there, some of those behaviors, you kind of, the consumer made a one-way door. If your employer bought a Zoom, uh, license and a, uh, a VPN license and you bought a new office chair for your house, odds are pretty good you're going to work more days at home, you know, whether you're forced to or not. Agreed. And the other point that comes out of this is good point that you make is, you know, grocery stores is one example. Do the SKU sets look different? Do, do hiring merchandise look different when people come back in the store? It also translates over to, to you know, fashion and, and other other types of entities within retail. Uh, is my SKU set look different now? Given that people are, are shopping online, does that actually give me enough data to know, hey, these are the 15 SKUs that I need to carry versus the 45 that I carry or whatever the case may be? Definitely uh, fair points there. Yeah, I'm avoiding talking about apparel because it's it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, no, agreed, agreed. It's actually interesting. I, I have um, you know one client that we, that we talked to a few days ago, they're in uh, luxury fashion. And I know, uh, again, apparel is, is tougher because people actually want to see it. They want to touch it. But they've been able to, you know, take that same, you know, luxury retail is more of that one-on-one -on -one experience, of course, take that same experience online and be able to create this experience where people can actually, you know, again, not the same as touching and feeling, but being able to see it, you know, kind of live with a consultant one-on-one, -on -one, be able to talk through their wardrobe, stuff like that. So 
I think again, there's there's things that are coming out of this that uh, some may stick, some may not. But it is it is good for retailers to be kind of analyzing what's happening and, and take note of that so that they can quickly adapt depending on how consumers shift their behaviors. Really, yeah, I think that is a, a great point. So as you've been kind of working with different, um, you know, retailers and, and kind of being in the retail space, I think one of the areas, and I know Omnichannel is kind of a, a buzzword that's, that's, that has its own, uh, sense, like people have their own uh, opinions around using that. But I think the one thing that is really apparent is that, you know, the retailers that were really kind of just focused on brick and mortar now really need, you know, one of the learnings from this is the digital side is equally, if not more important in some cases. And how do you also take that, if you've had a strong online presence, how do you take that same experience and be able to mimic that uh, in your brick and mortar location so some, someone gets a seamless experience throughout? What do you think, as, as people kind of put these strategies you know, forward, what are some of the things that retailers get wrong in, in developing these strategies? Twofold, like very specific to COVID, to me, one of the, the most important shopping experiences for the next 24 months is one that we classically would have thought of as sort of the poster child for, and I, you can't see me on the podcast, but I'm doing air quotes, for Omnichannel, which is uh, curbside pickup, right? Uh, so, you know, a, a thing that's not often talked about, there's going to be a very slow emergence from this pandemic. Um, and it's until there's an outright cure, which is very, unfortunately very likely a long ways away, it's extremely unlikely that retailers are going to be allowed to have the same density in their store that they're used to. Like, we're just not going to see a Costco with 3,000 people in it. And so in that scenario, if Costco wants to have the same sales they've had in the past or even grow, they're going to have to sell stuff to people that aren't in the store, or they're going to have to sell a lot more stuff to each person that does come in. And so for most goods, a big chunk of that becomes doorside pickup or curbside pickup. Like here in Chicago, Starbucks is a doorside pickup only business right now. Like you order online and you pick it up at the front of the store. And so, you know, one of the, the most important experiences to get right is that one. If you were lucky enough to be Target or Walmart or Best Buy and have heavily leaned into that experience over the last several years, you're super well suited to serve the customer during the pandemic. But if you were a Trader Joe's that said, you know what, we don't think digital is a very big deal and we think customers really are going to love our employees and our, our better, you know, personalized human customer experience, which was a perfectly reasonable bet in the old world you're probably in trouble right now, right? Because you're needing to make an emergency investment to figure out, you know, to get that infrastructure in place to do curbside. So I, in general, I would say like the retailers that are best situated are ones did have a significant presence in both. Like with the possible exception of Amazon, most pure play e-commerce sites are probably disadvantaged because of the pandemic. And that's, that's somewhat counterintuitive, but sad note for pure play e-commerce sites, you have a ton of single points of failure. So you ship all your goods out of one fulfillment center. And when enough people in that fulfillment center get sick, you can't ship. Or if uh, your fulfillment center happens to be in a municipality where the local government decides that you're not uh, an essential service, you can't ship. Returns via the UPS are like much harder right now. So like if you don't have stores to return products to back, you know, assuming we start accepting returns again someday, that's much harder. And so I actually think it's going to be tough to be a pure play e-commerce site. Um, Side note, Amazon has a ton of infrastructure for, for overcoming that. It's going to be super tough to be a brick-and-mortar retailer that hasn't leaned into digital at all. And the people that are going to be best situated are the ones that were already 
investing and betting on these kind of, you know, hybrid experiences that start the shopping trip online and finish it in the parking lot. And I think another great point that you bring up is with the customers that actually come in store, it's more important to be able to increase really your 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 revenue with those customers because, you know, there's two strategies like you noted, put out a, a digital strategy, which retailers should do. And on top of that, you know, if customers are coming in your store, how do you how do you increment that revenue? And with that, I think in store, one of the other things uh, that people are are starting to think about is how do I educate my customer more in store? So in that two or five or ten or thirty minutes that they're in my store location, how do they learn more about my products? How do instead of picking up those two sweaters, how do they pick up three sweaters? How do they think about basically really gaining loyalty with those customers to be able to increase a revenue, but also use this opportunity to really connect with the customer more so uh, than they have in the past. So I think that's another another area of focus that some retailers will have to take, build a, again, build that brand loyalty with uh, with their customer base. For sure. And I think customer experiences in that genre that may not have been economically viable before this are very economically viable now, right? So a lot of businesses... If you said, hey, we're going to have a higher touch in-store experience, we're going to have a more sales assisted experience with a better trained sales associate, maybe with some technology tools to augment their sales presentation, or we're going to have a more digitally enabled self-service experience that has richer experiences on, on the phone that the customer brings with them. You know, and you might have looked at that and said, like, you know, how do the unit economics for that work when I'm getting 3000 customers an hour through my store and those salespeople can only serve a certain number of them. Now, when the number of customers you can serve is artificially lowered, it probably does make sense to, you know, economic sense to lean into maximizing the opportunity from each one of those customers with a more bespoke customer experience. Right. And so this whole category of appointment based retail and you kind of alluded to that that luxury apparel brand. That's a more viable strategy for a broader set of retailers now than it would have been before. Jason, as, as you're looking at kind of different you know, in-store experiences, again, pre-pandemic, you know, going into that, the actual stores, what are some of the best in-store experiences that you've seen brands create to be able to connect with their customers? To me, one of the, the smartest, best trends for in-store digital experiences was about delivering richer digital experiences on the consumer's personal device. So we could talk in the U.S. about, hey, pre-pandemic, depending on how you count, 16, 17% of all, all retail sales was online. But what was a way more important um, number was that 50% of all purchase decisions were digitally influenced. So before we went in that store and bought that new monitor for our home office, we went to Samsung.com. We read reviews on BestBuy.com. We, we used all these digital tools to do research. If you walk into a store for an unplanned purchase, all those digital amenities that you've come to expect are not in the store. Like ratings and reviews are one of the most influential experiences, attributes to a shopping experience. Very few brick and mortar uh, stores have any notion of delivering ratings and reviews in the store. And so we were, you know, pre-pandemic, we were starting to see retailers lean into in-store mobile experiences that understand the context you're in and deliver that that richer digital attributes in the ratings and reviews while you're shopping. And at the time, I thought that was a good experience. It's frankly even more important now, like smart people back then would have argued, should I do that with some shelf edge technology or should I do that with an aisle end kiosk of some kind or, you know, smart digital signage or should I use the customer's phone? I tended to lean to the customer's phone because the CapEx was a lot lower. The customer pays for the, the, the screen. But now because of touchless, it's a no brainer. Like none of those touchscreen or button based interactive experiences in store 
are going to work. In fact, you know, every retailer that's invested in self-service checkout are quickly retrofitting their self-service checkout, not to rely on that touchscreen anymore because people are going to expect contactless experiences. And so to me, that's, that's going to be using the phone in your pocket as an interface for experiences, content, and infrastructure that the store delivers. And then the other half of it's going to be delivering way better content to the sales associate to enable the sales associate to deliver more uh, bespoke sales experiences. Yeah, I think I think touchless technologies are going to be a you know, part of uh, what we start to see in a lot of stores. Uh, we're actually working with one uh, one retailer right now that wants to do something similar to what you're saying. You know, have a screen on really their their top items in store, and you can kind of walk by with voice technology and kind of activate the uh, the informational video or ask different questions about the specs of of the items that you're that you potentially might want to buy. So totally agree with you there. I think that's going to be a trend that we start to see out there in the market. To me, in some ways, the model for the store of the future, like there were these Chinese grocery stores that were designed by Alibaba and JD. So Alibaba owns this concept called Hima, um, which is uh, Fresh Hippo in English. And uh, JD owns a concept called Seven Fresh. And both of these were very experience-rich physical shopping environments that were heavily integrated with digital. And, and and almost universally, the digital they were integrated with was that the phone talked to all the all the displays and shelves in the store. And then the store also was natively a rich fulfillment center for home delivery. So the, the most popular model at Hama was you'd go to the store, do a shopping trip, build a list, and then using your phone in your hand the whole time, and then on subsequent reorders, you would just reorder that list from home and they would deliver it to you in 30 minutes for free. I think that kind of a uh, purpose-built, digitally-enabled, omni-channel store, if I could throw more buzzwords in there, I think that's going to be accelerated in the U.S. Are there um, any sort of uh, best practices that you think, again, there's a lot to be seen here, and we've talked about a lot of the stuff that are potential ideas, but if, if you had to give retailers maybe one or two items that they could focus on, are there best practices that you think should be implemented today in most retail type of organizations? Best practices is kind of a loaded word. Like I'm a consultant and I'm guilty of, of using it a bunch of times. And it's that's ironic because I actually don't think best practices exist. If every brand, every retailer has a unique market and relationship with the customer and what works for one, like is almost certain not to work for everyone else, or at least it will require a different nuance. So with that huge caveat that there's, you know, probably not a, a one size fits all solution that, you know, the the kind of things that that tend to cause retailers to trip up and in this kind of disruptive environment even more so are organizational impediments, right? It's all the sacred cows that keep a retailer from doing something new. And so in, in this time, this is the perfect time to think of yourself as having gone fired from your old job. And, you know, imagine that you just started a new job. And the thing you need to start with is not how you did things last week or what infrastructure you guys have a bunch of money tied up in. What you need to start with is who this new consumer is and what they're going to want and what kind of experience is going to win for them. And, you know, you need to be thinking about building that from scratch, not just evolving where you were. Um, because, you know, one of the things that is very true is every previous recession is when the most interesting, innovative companies get born and when the incumbents most get disrupted. And so spoiler alert, if you were an incumbent going into this, like you should either prepare to get disrupted or you need to disrupt yourself. And the, the way to disrupt yourself is not like evolve. It's like be reborn. Like, you, you know, this is happening way too fast to sort of uh, slowly iterate. And so I guess 
the kind of cop-out advice I would give is less about a particular experience or a particular thing that's going to vary from retailer to retailer, but really that attitude of sort of embracing a new reality and kind of shedding your old reality. Are there um, technologies, again, if, as you've been working with different retailers, technologies that you think you've seen over the last you know few years uh, that have been adopted faster than you, you had expected? Yes and no. So I've been talking about this stuff for a long time, and I feel like there's there's a very clever saying. I can't remember who was the first one to say it, but like change tends to happen way slower than we all expect in the short term and way faster than we all expect in the long term. So as like someone that's been talking about this technology in store for 25 years, like I feel like I've always been the one that's overestimating how fast it was going to come in those first two years and underestimating how big the change was going to be over that 10 year horizon. And I'll be honest, I used to be super excited about the technology and, and talking about the specific widgets. Now I'm really leery of it because it's the wrong bias. Like, you know, nobody should be doing something because it's blockchain or because it's AI or because it's voice recognition. You should be doing something because your customer is a busy mom uh, that doesn't have time to go to six stores anymore. And so now she needs to complete her, her shopping mission in four stores, right? Like you need to be focused on those business outcomes, not the, the tech. And so people that come in and they're like, you know, I'm a touchscreen technology. And so every problem is solved with a touchscreen, like be very cynical and skeptical. Like that being said, I actually like think that mo those mobile devices have had a much more prominent effect on changing the shopping experience than than people realize. Right. And if if you really look at the big picture, all our, our stores are permeations of the store design that came from the 1920s. Like Piggly Wiggly was probably the first store in the, the modern design with sort of open cell. And all these stores are designed around this premise that the customer will only know what we tell them. So like what products we merchandise is the universe of products you can buy. And the, the information you have about that product is the information that's available on the shelf. And that's you go into most stores today and it wouldn't feel that uh, unfamiliar to the original management team at Piggly Wiggly in 1920. But the reality is that today that customer knows way more about their shopping options than what you're providing in the store. They've they've largely made their purchase decision before they ever walked in the store. Right. So the front door of the store that you're spending all that time thinking about is actually in the customer's pocket. And so I, I just think, you know, if I had to say, like, who is the retail technology winner of the last 10 years? It, it's not digital signage or AI or even, you know, things that are broadly deployed, like supply chain optimization or things like that. It's really the digital empowerment of the consumer. Well, thank you, Jason. That was a wealth of information for our listeners. Anything uh, to leave them with as, uh, as we conclude? No, been a great conversation. Again, like I, I will tell you, you know, for retailers listening on the call, like the most alarming common uh, uh, thing that comes up at the moment that's a little too frightening is underestimating how big a, a change uh, that this is. And so I would really encourage you to like do some scenario planning around the, the your business being dramatically disrupted by by all of the, the trends that we're seeing right now. And, and for sure, I hope everyone listening uh, stays healthy and well. Awesome. Awesome. Again, uh, Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicis <laughs> and host of the Jason and Scott e-commerce podcast. Thank you again, Jason. My pleasure, Bobby. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in the show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.